WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington. Welcome to the Kojo Namdi Show, connecting your neighborhood with the world. It's Tech Tuesday. For many in our region, life without the Internet is inconceivable. Thanks to computers, tablets, and smartphones, we're connected 24-7 at work, at home, and on the go. But that's not the case for everyone. Even in the national capital region, some people don't have Internet service. Maybe it's too expensive, maybe it's too confusing, or maybe they live in an urban or rural pocket where it's simply not available. President Obama says it's time for more competition among broadband providers to expand Internet access to those who don't have it and to lower the prices for those who do. Today on Tech Tuesday, the challenges facing both Internet providers and local communities. Joining us in studio is Danielle Kale, policy analyst with New America's Open Technology Institute. Danielle, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Lee Rainey is Director of Internet Science and Technology Research at the Pew Research Center. Lee, good to see you again. Hello, Kojo. And also joining us in studio is Kelly Ellsworth, Executive Director of ByteBack, which provides computer training here in Washington, D.C. Kelly, thank you for joining us. Hi, Kojo. Joining us by phone is Hugh Grundon, President and CEO of Easton Utilities. Hugh, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Danielle, I'll start with you. Many of us have the sense that we're paying a lot for our Internet service. What sense? It's true. You've done a survey that shows that that is, in fact, true. How does Washington compare with other cities in the U.S. and around the world for Internet cost and Internet speed? So uh, the results of uh, a lot of research on broadband speed uh, and price don't look particularly good for Washington, D.C. Um, so uh, the New America Foundation's Open Technology Institute, where I work, uh, looks at the cost uh, and speed of broadband in 24 cities around the world. So we compare Washington, D.C. to New York, L.A., San Francisco, and also Paris and Bucharest and Seoul and Tokyo and Hong Kong and a handful of other cities. What we find is that we are paying far more here in Washington, and what we're getting is far less. So $30 a month or $40 a month will buy you a gigabit of service in Asia and in a lot of parts of Europe. Uh, $300 a month in Washington, D.C. will buy you 500 megabits, which is half that speed, if you can get Verizon Fios. Uh, and the one of the other key parts, and this ties back into what uh, President Obama was talking about last week, and we'll talk about again tonight, uh, I believe, is that uh, there are co- there are cities in the United States where you can get service that's competitive around the world. Some of the fastest and cheap internet, cheapest Internet services in the U.S. found in mid-sized cities where the broadband provider is a yo- local utility company, not Comcast, not Verizon. Give us some examples, please. Sure. Uh, so in Chattanooga, Tennessee, the local um, electrical utility now offers a gigabit for $70 a month. Uh, in Kansas City, Google Fiber, which is a public-private partnership, will also give you a gigabit for $70 a month. There's lots of other cities, um, Bristol, Virginia, Lafayette, Louisiana. The president made a speech last week in Cedar Falls, Iowa, which is the only city in Iowa that offers a gigabit, and it's not coming from a big telecom provider. It's coming from the local utility company. So that if I'm in Washington, what I'm paying $300 a month for, somebody in Oh, Japan, in a major city, is paying $30 a month for the service at twice my speed, and somebody in Chattanooga, Tennessee, is paying $70 a month for the service that's twice my speed. That's correct. 800-433-8850 is the number to call. Do you have a choice of Internet providers where you live? Do you think more competition would lower cable and Internet prices? Give us a call, 800 800- Four three three eight eight five zero. You can send email to kojo at wamu.org or shoot us a tweet at Kojo Show. The high cost of Internet service is one reason that some people don't have it. Kelly, in your experience, who in D.C. does not have Internet because they can't afford it? And how does Comcast Internet Essentials Program give low-income families with children a price break? Um, 
Well, in our experience, um, if you look at a map of who has high-speed Internet and who doesn't, it would look pretty much how you would imagine it. Those of us who are living in Ward 3 are much more likely to have high-speed Internet than those who are living in Ward 7 or 8. Um, uh, Comcast Internet Essentials has a great deal where um, those who have families who are who are eligible for free and reduced lunch get Internet for about $10 a month. Um, but most of the students who come to Biteback, and we serve about 1,000 low-income students a year, um, are people who are um, over the age of 40 or 50 and not likely to have young children at home. Um, and uh, $40, $50, $70 a month is, is too much for you know a single senior citizen to be able to pay. Lee Rainey, give us the big picture on Internet access. How many Americans have broadband connections at home, and what groups of people tend not to be connected? In the Pew data, about 70%, maybe a little bit higher now, have broadband at home, and another 10% of people have smartphones that essentially give them relatively decent high-speed Internet access through their smartphone or their tablet computer. The figures for the metro area are actually pretty interesting themselves. It's a pretty good story because, as a rule, this is a, a pretty affluent area, so actually there are higher levels of connectivity in the D.C. metro area than there are in other parts of the country. But there's still important stories related to race and class and disability and where people live. So in the metro area, about 92% of households, 92% of white households, have broadband connectivity at home. Only 79% of African-American households and 79% of Hispanic households have high-speed connectivity. If you've got a college education, you 94% of the people in the region who have that have broadband connections at home. Only 62% of those who have a high school diploma or less. If you live in a household earning less than $20,000, about half of you are online compared with 94% who live in households earning $75,000 or more. Also, in the Pew data, not the census data I was just citing, we find that disability is a predictor of non-Internet use. It's just harder and it's more expensive to use some of the add-ons you need to get to use computers in the Internet. Rural status particularly relates to broadband. If you live in a rural area in the eastern shore, in the mountains of Maryland or Virginia, you're less likely to have broadband connectivity. And in our surveys, we also find there's a language issue. We offer our surveys in both Spanish and English. If a respondent chooses to use Spanish, there is a significantly lower likelihood that that person will use the Internet, even if they have a relatively high household income or high-level education. There's something going on with just being comfortable with English or not that is driving some level of adoption. Hugh Grundon, another reason some people don't have Internet is because there's no service where they live. How did Eastern Utilities, which started as a municipal electric company on Maryland's eastern shore, decide to start providing cable and then Internet service where none existed? Well, that's the precise reason we got into the business was there was not an incumbent provider. There was an investor-owned cable company that was looking at the area but not making much progress. And really in keeping with how municipal electrics have evolved and and, uh, developed over time, it was a desire for our own local self-determination, and that gave rise to our our notion to start a cable system, and it was a natural adjunct to our existing electric system that's been in place since 1914. How do you set your broadband prices, and how do they compare with the bigger investor-owned companies like Verizon or Comcast? In our case, uh, we have uh, two other uh, providers in the area, uh, Comcast and Atlantic Broadband, and uh, our rates are basically on par, maybe slightly less. It's very hard to compare rates head-to-head in as much as we bundle the products in many different ways. But uh, we don't have uh, a model whereby we offer significantly reduced rates. We're more uh, focused on the availability and access to the broadband. On to the telephones. Here now is Rachel in Silver Spring, Maryland. Rachel, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm an unemployed professional, and because I don't have a child in any school uh, food program, I am not eligible for any of the uh, low-cost Internet programs. I, I don't have cable. I don't think I should be spending the money on cable when I'm getting unemployment. And so other than I have a smartphone, because otherwise I have no access, but you can't apply for a job and do real search stuff on, on, a, on a phone, even with a great connection. And I just 
think it's outrageous that there's no such thing as low-cost Internet in this area. That's my comment. And you believe that this should be a public utility, don't you? Absolutely. I think it should be a public utility. At this point in time, the fact that when you are doing um, your income for social services, they actually will deduct cable as an expected expense then if that's the case, you would think that Internet would be considered just, you know, automatic. I do believe it should be a public utility, absolutely. In addition to which, Danielle Kale, since she is unemployed, Rachel is, then it's ironic that on the one hand you're unemployed and need to look for a job, on the other you don't have what in today's world is essential to looking for a job. That's correct. Um, I think, you know, broadband service used to be considered a luxury for a lot of people. It was something that you wanted, you know, to um, uh, to watch high speed, you know, movies or something on, on or, or access media. But it's really uh, it's it's really an essential service now. Uh, there are, of course, you know, the important thing is there are other places that you can go to get Internet access, which is where community anchor institutions, schools, libraries, uh, community centers come in uh, that are very important. But it's true that you can't, uh, you know, apply for benefits or jobs or participate in a lot of other parts of, of modern society without without Internet access. And you really can't do a lot of that on a phone. You can do a lot of great things on a smartphone, but uh, doing, um, you know, Everything that you would do on a computer is not, it's not the same. One of the things Rachel did not say, but she wanted to say, I know, is that she now goes to the library, but apparently everybody else in her position mm -hmm. has that idea also. Kelly? <laughs> well, I, I, I would want to agree with, uh, with what she said, is that it, computer access has become absolutely essential to life. It's not just for applying for jobs. It's accessing government services. It's accessing health care, emailing doctors, accessing health records. Um, the D.C. government now has the Common Core curriculum, which requires students to be computer savvy. Um, homework is computer and Internet based. Email, there are email and online portals required to communicate with teachers. Um, and now the GED is now a computer based test. And as a result, um, we've experienced a 71 percent drop in the number of individuals taking the GED um, and a large drop in the number of passing as well, because you need to not only be computer comfortable to pass the GED, you also need to be um, you need to be able to take, have a computer to practice the tests at home. So essentially, at this point, Internet access is a basic human, a basic civil right that we need. And because people who are denied it are denied equal access to government services, health care, education, and employment. 800-433-8850 on this Tech Tuesday on broadband competition. How important is affordable Internet access in today's world? In your view, 800-433-8850. Lee Rainey? A colleague of mine, John Horrigan, used some Pew data and some other measures to determine that about a third of the adult population is not really Internet ready, especially for the, the kinds of functions that Kelly was talking about and for the just-on-the-horizon Internet of Things, where our computer literacy, our tech savviness is going to be a central way for people to navigate these spaces. So it's not just a question anymore, really, of, of access, because you can go to those libraries and get it, but it's a question of how prepared you are and whether you're comfortable with the array of tools that are important to becoming a good citizen. Daniel, in many parts of our region, residents have a choice between at least two different cable and Internet providers. Often it's Comcast and Verizon Fios, but not everywhere. Why is there only one choice in your building, and how common is that? Um, so I uh, live in an apartment building in Washington, D.C. Um, that is only wired for Comcast service. Uh, so one of the things, and this is sort of responsible for a lot of the reason when we talk about um, how uh, – companies have divided, cable companies in particular, divided up parts of the country. And so you'll find, you, you won't find Comcast in the same area that you'll find Time Warner Cable. A lot of these companies signed um, franchise agreements and other deals with cities, with areas, with buildings and apartment complexes uh, to provide blanket service, which can be a good thing in that, you know, they're, they're saying we'll provide service to this whole area. But of course, uh, it means that you only have one option. So uh, the particular um, scenario where an apartment complex is only wired for one service and sign for one service provider and si signs an exclusive deal um, is no longer allowed uh, since 2007. But that doesn't mean that a new provider is necessarily going to come in. It's expensive. Uh, it's not necessarily worth it. 
And that means that if you only have one choice as a consumer, you don't have any leverage. So you can get access, but you get it at whatever price the company wants to charge. Uh, and that's one of the big um, concerns and one of the effects of uh, municipal competition that we've seen is that uh, it gives customers a choice. It gives them an option to switch. Uh, the municipal networks can provide things that the incumbents won't necessarily provide. And the incumbents often compete in response. So that's where we've seen in places uh, um, like Chattanooga and Lafayette, Louisiana, we've seen great you know, new offers or faster speeds being rolled out uh, first in these smaller towns or in a place like uh, Austin, Texas. When Google Fiber announced they were going to Austin, Texas, AT&T announced they were going to build a gigabit network in Austin. So there is a real impact of competition, and consumers will see it in the price that they pay each month. Kelly? Oh, there are some places that, and even in the city, where you cannot get high-speed internet. Um, in fact, our communications associate at Biteback um, was not able to get high-speed internet at home. She couldn't. There was no Comcast. There was no Verizon. No such thing. She lives near the near the arboretum, which I think is ironic because Lee was talking about rural areas have a harder time getting internet, mm -hmm. and I guess living by the ar the it's arboretum as as we come to makes rural, a yes. rural area. <laughs> Got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation. You can still call us, 800-433-8850. It's Tech Tuesday. We're talking broadband competition, improving Internet access, speed, and price. I'm Kojo Nandi. Good afternoon. You're listening to WAMU 88.5, 1223 now. Partly cloudy skies, 41 degrees in northwest Washington. While reporting on the war in Iraq, David Morris was riding in a Humvee hit by an IED. It was one of the experiences in that country that led his to his post-traumatic stress disorder. On the next Fresh Air, Morris speaks about his new book, The Evil Hour. It tells the story of how PTSD has changed his life and examines the science and philosophy behind different therapies. That's at 2 on Fresh Air. Wherever you spend your morning, NPR's Morning Edition is there with you. Wherever the story takes place, NPR's Morning Edition connects it with you. Dallas. Des Moines. Topeka. Montana. You will own your morning when you spend tomorrow with Morning Edition from NPR News. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from Commonwealth Orthopedics, who merged with Richmond-based Virginia. Commonwealth Orthopedics will now be known as Virginia. The doctors, staff, and 10 locations will not change. More information is at orthovirginia.com. And from Emergent Biosolutions, a global biopharmaceutical company committed to developing and manufacturing products that will protect and enhance 50 million lives by 2025. More at ebsi.com slash anniversary. And from General Dynamics Contact Center Solutions, delivering mission-critical customer contact centers for large enterprise call center requirements around the world. GDIT.com. Welcome back to our Tech Tuesday discussion on broadband competition and in improving Internet access with Kelly Ellsworth, Executive Director of ByteBack, which provides computer training in Washington, D.C. Lee Rainey is Director of Internet Science and Technology Research at the Pew Research Center. And Danielle Kale is a policy analyst with New America's Open Technology Institute. Hugh Grundon is President and CEO of Eastern Utilities. Hugh, your challenge is providing connectivity in a community where some sections are sparsely populated. What does it cost to lay new cable? And do you think about expanding service into unserved parts of your area? Uh, we do. And uh, to go to the question of what does it cost, it's about $35,000 a mile to construct the facilities when we look at extensions. And uh, while ubiquitous access is our end goal for our entire community, the, the area of Talbot County, uh, there's a practical and economic reality. Um, we don't use a subsidized model, and many times we find ourselves partnering with the communities. And what that means basically is we might go to a community that's remotely located from the town, uh, maybe an enclave of 50 or so homes uh, several miles from the incorporated limits of town, and speak with the residents and appeal to them that, to put in a contribution in native construction 
and it's pretty uh, well received in as much as the customers understand that they're improving the value of their property. They're getting uh, high-speed access up to 100 megabits per second. And uh, so there has to, we look at innovative ways to extend the system. How does connectivity affect real estate prices on the eastern shore, Hugh? We've had, uh, there's a fair amount of anecdotal evidence uh, provided by real estate brokers. And in Talbot County, uh, the real estate market is a, is a huge economic driver. And time and again, we've been uh, regaled with stories of customers looking to buy homes, uh, and maybe their second homes, folks from Philadelphia or D.C., and they find that broadband access is not available, which will not enable them to perhaps work from home an extra day a week. And they will essentially uh, walk away from that contract because broadband access is not available. I'm not paying a gazillion million dollars for a house if it doesn't have broadband. Here we go to Matt. In that seems King, to be the case. <laughs> here we go to Matt in King George, Virginia. Matt, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Good afternoon, Kojo, and thanks for taking my call. Uh, Speaking toward what uh, your guest Kelly was saying about how uh, a single cable provider may own the, the rights or franchise rights to an area, is that what we should expect in the future? Or I suppose the question is, what would it take to allow for competition uh, in an area uh, among cable companies uh, rather than what Fios has had to do in laying their own fiber network that they can then go in and compete with? Is it simply an infrastructure problem? Or is the future basically what we have now? Danielle? So one thing that I think it's important to note is that uh, the future for in the long term for high-speed Internet access right now looks like it's fiber. So investment in infrastructure, things like what Fios is doing, is, is a good thing uh, generally because fiber is uh, technology that allows for high speeds and scalability. Um, when you want to talk about competition, there are a couple ways to do it. Um, one is to have multiple providers, each with their own infrastructure, which is a lot of times what we have here. It's a telephone company and a cable company competing. Um, or, you know, as we might see in, in areas with municipally owned networks, a municipal electric company that offers Internet service competing. Um, the other option, and this is something that uh, we see in other parts of the world, uh, is um, to have what's called open access provisions on uh, um, on the infrastructure, which means that uh, other companies can come in and lease wholesale access at fair prices from a company that owns infrastructure. It's supposed to lower the barrier to entry, make it easier for a new company that wants to come into an area and provide service not to have to do the upfront investment in their own infrastructure. And so we see that in the research we've done in a city like Paris, uh, where the state-owned telecom company had to do this. They had to provide access, and we had new companies come in. Uh, this was about, this is in the last decade. They started offering service. As they got more customers, they were then able to invest. And so what we see there is that's one of the cities I mentioned earlier where uh, you can get um, reliable, uh, fast internet at affordable prices. And it's, um, you are seeing, you know, new offers all the time. The price in Paris stays the same and the speeds go up. That's not something you hear very often in the United States. Matt, thank you very much for your call. Kelly, the District of Columbia has two municipal fiber networks, the older DC net, which connects city offices, and the newer, faster DC community access network known as DC CAN. Who do they serve, and is there any talk of opening these networks to DC residents? Oh, in my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> um, my understanding, and I'm not an expert on this, um, is that DC net, ser you know, is the traditional serves the district government, the fire department, the police department, the public schools. DC CAN was created through a $17 million um, stimulus grant. Um, and the idea was to create something more for the community. And um, the idea was, I believe, to um, make Internet more affordable in Ward 7 and 8 and to provide access to community anchor institutions. Um, I think, but there have been a... a There's a complication yeah. because apparently that doesn't simply mean blasting a public Wi-Fi signal at Congress Heights. Apparently the city is not allowed to be a so-called last-mile provider bringing the Internet directly to consumers, which complicates matters, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly does. Yes, it complicates it in ways that, frankly, I don't understand. So allow me go to go to Matt in Huntington, Maryland. Matt, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yes, good afternoon, everybody. Um, my question is, is, is the FCC doing anything uh, to ban or limit the use or define the use of the term high speed? Uh, you know, it's constantly advertised. The panel today has used that term to refer to everything from a gigabit to 
you know, when you refer to Comcast in D.C., I think it's 10 megabits. Uh, there's a huge disparity between those two numbers and those two services. Uh, and what was high speed in 2012 is certainly not going to be high speed in 2016. And as long as there any type of legislation or regulation of that term, sort of like you'd have in marketing or, or whether it's regulatory. Is this shifting sands that we're talking about here, Lee Rainey, exactly what we mean when we say high speed today? Sure. Uh, bandwidth conditions uh, have the same sort of dynamic to them that Moore's law has given to computing power. They keep getting better and faster um, logarithmically. The, the changes take place very rapidly. Um, so the FCC has had a variety of definitions over the years about what constitutes broadband. I don't actually know now that it's it's very different from what it was in the mid-2000s, although Chairman Wheeler of the FCC has talked about the table stakes, essentially what you need to survive in a, in a decent way. It's 25 megabits uh, downloading speed, 3 megabits uploading speed, although there are lots of communities now that are in much better shape than that. Danielle? Yeah, so um, the the FCC right now defines broadband as four megabits per second download and one upload, so actually lower than anything that, that you mentioned uh, when you called in. Um, it's But Lee is right. They... Uh, they have the ability, the FCC has uh, the authority to talk, to look into and help promote uh, broadband deployment across the country. And as part of that, they define uh, what broadband is, what they consider to be the minimum that people need for high-speed internet. I use broadband and high-speed generally interchangeably, um, broadband being the sort of technical term that the FCC uses. Uh, so in 2000, it was 256 kilobits per second, which is basically dial-up. It's a little bit better than what we would have thought about as dial-up. Uh, in 2010, they changed that to four megabits per second, and right now they're think they're looking at upping it to 25 megabits per second download and and three megabits per second upload. Jet that sort of reflects generally, uh, we download a lot more than we upload as as consumers of the internet. Uh, when they change that definition, if they change that definition, uh, which they're looking at right now, so we may see that change in the next few months. Uh, what that means is that it doesn't change what the companies can say is high speed. It does change what is defined as broadband, and it affects the federal programs that promote broad broadband deployment because what they're going to be giving money to and encouraging is going to be that faster speed. They're going to be nudging broadband providers. They're going to be <clears throat> changing the requirements for providers to get federal funding. Uh, and the idea is that that's the direction that we're moving in. So they have some ability to do it. They're not... Uh, necessarily going to change, you know, going to change the fact that I say high speed and I might be talking about a gigabit or a hundred megabits per second, but uh, they can they can make a difference for sure. Here now is Robert in Westminster, Maryland. Robert, your turn. Hi, Kojo. Um, first, thanks everybody for uh, your work on this issue and your interest in this and uh, bringing some publicity to it because it is a huge problem uh, with access to broadband nationwide. I'm uh, the president of the city council up here in Westminster, Maryland, about an hour north of D.C., and uh, we have the same problems that everybody has around the country in terms of limited access to uh, high-quality broadband services, competition, reasonable pricing, et cetera. And so uh, the city has been uh, exploring what we can do about this, and we've looked at all the different models, including Easton's you know, utility model, similar to what Chattanooga has done. And, uh, some other communities where the city has actually uh, become the broadband provider uh, and, and created a, a uh, you know an ISP that's municipally owned you know separate from a utility, um, and then of course we were hoping that maybe Google would come to Westminster, but that's not going to happen. So we've decided to take our destiny into our own hands, and we are building a city-owned municipal dark fiber network to every home and business. And then we just uh, have made an agreement with a what we're calling a network operator, a company called Ting, uh, who is a very aggressive, or they are a very aggressive uh, Internet company that's getting into broadband. You may have seen uh, they just acquired a, uh, an ISP down in Charlottesville, Virginia, for the same purpose, to, to start doing broadband over fiber. So we are going to partner with Ting to bring the gigabit services to the city of Westminster up here right in the Baltimore, Washington region. And we're doing it in a way where we are, uh, the city is going to own the fiber, but we're going to turn all of the operations and customer service over to Ting. And, but we've also asked Ting, just following up on the discussion about open access, that Ting is going to operate this in an open manner. So 
after an initial ramp-up period, they're going to be bringing on other service providers. And so the, the residents and businesses in the city of Westminster are going to have choices, and those choices are going to well, drive prices down, and they're going to uh, create... Robert, it all sounds like a great idea, but have you done your research to make sure that this does not conflict with any state laws in Maryland? Yes. Yes, we have, and they don't. Um, and we've... We've made quite a bit of progress, and uh, it does not conflict with any state laws. I tell, you why, I tell you why I raised that question, or I'll have Danielle respond to why I raised that question. President Obama says he does want more municipal broadband providers like you in Westminster to create more competition. But, Danielle, how do some state laws make that difficult right now? So I think uh, what what Robert was describing is fantastic, um, and it's very lucky for uh, the residents of, of, of Westminster that Maryland doesn't have any restrictions. So there are about 19 states, at least in the across the country, that have res- these kinds of restrictions. Some of them are outright bans. So the state legislature says uh, cities cannot provide residential service on city-owned networks um, or... Uh, or that if they have a network, which is the case of in Chattanooga, for example, they can't expand beyond the service area where they offer electrical services. So you have a successful network, you want to move out into to other areas, um, you can't. Uh, but the other thing, you know, in a lot of the states, it's not an outright ban, but they'll create really onerous restrictions that discourage cities um, or other kinds of sort of, you know, roadblocks that they throw up uh, that are barriers. And so that's why President Obama is talking about what we can do to remove those barriers uh, to to give local communities the ability to take their destiny into their own hands if they want to and actually invest in these networks. Not that people can't figure it out, but where did those barriers come from in the first place? Uh, they come from the state legislatures generally, and it's often a result of lobbying uh, from the incumbent tab- cable and telecom companies. They don't want to compete with cities on broadband internet. Their models are about, uh, you know, profit and return on investment, as they should be. They're, they're companies, and, and they, they have a responsibility to do that. But when a city is willing to, you know, uh, offer a better deal to customers uh, when a city is thinking more about how to get universal broadband access than how to maximize profits, That's um, that can be a concern. And so they've gone to a lot of the state legislatures and they have lobbied very hard and they've spent a lot of money. Uh, the Center for Public Integrity did a really interesting report on this last summer where they looked at how much money these companies had poured into uh, this lobbying activity at the state level. Uh, and they're getting they're seeing the results in a lot of them. Thank you very much for your call, and good luck to you in Westminster, Maryland, Robert. Um, Even if state laws change, and I'll start with you, Hugh Grundon, on this, even if state laws change, are we likely to see more municipal service providers popping up, especially in markets that already have a Verizon or a Comcast in place? I certainly think so. There's uh, well over 400 municipal systems currently, and so there's uh, a lot of examples and, and well-run models. It's also my understanding that the Department of Commerce is launching a new initiative. I think they're calling it Broadband USA to promote the broadband deployment and adoption of broadband. And the purpose uh, is to address the problems of broadband infrastructure, planning, finance, construction, and operations. Uh, like most endeavors, the devil's in the details. And um, communities that already had electric companies uh, were already around the curve somewhat. Communities that don't have that infrastructure in place, whether it be billing or other resources, the human resources, bucket trucks, whatever else might be necessary, uh, would have to take a long, hard look and understand the details of, of what their investment is going to entail and how they're going to operate the system. But it's, it's certainly doable. It's been done all over the country. Lee? There are any number of economic studies that that suggest that these aren't slam-dunk operations. It's expensive. You have to pay off the bonds to do it. And and it's not entirely clear that you can recoup your losses or recoup your original outlay. But we're, one of the things that is likely to change the economic situation and the broader dynamic is the rise of the Internet of Things, where so many other devices, appliances, the cars we drive in, the rooms we go in, will be using data and feeding data to other places. And it's almost always true that as you get a new increment of bandwidth in, into your life, 
killer applications soon follow. So email was the first one that made the Internet appealing in the first place. The rise of broadband is very deeply tied to the rise of music and then video uh, downloading. There will be more killer apps in our future, maybe holograms, maybe uh, immersive experiences that are just unbelievably powerful for people. So the economics of this is going to change in the next decade as we find new ways to do information sharing and communicating with each other. We got a tweet from Eric who asks, are there any federal government programs to help communities build their own Internet networks? That's one of the things that the District of Columbia benefited yes, from, Yes, right? and I, I believe Chattanooga as well um, benefited from a stimulus grant. Theirs was a lot larger than ours was, I believe. But um, I, I don't know of any new money outside of that, those stimulus funds that's available. Danielle? So um, uh, it's correct that the stimulus funds helped uh, fund the middle mile network, so the, the backbone that you need so you can offer service. Uh, last week's announcements suggest that there will be more. So the Broadband USA program is going to help give uh, technical advice and tools and sort of other um, resources to communities on how to finance, how to operate, how to build these networks. But the Department of Agriculture is also going to revamp its uh, grant and loan programs to help communities actually fund uh, these programs. So there will be more money available uh, to work with communities. There's a variety of ways. The FCC also has the uh, Connect America Fund, which is also a middle mile um, uh, uh, program uh, that's out there helping connect rural and high cost areas. So there's a lot of great initiatives going on. One of the challenges is also actually finding out about them. So that's where the resources piece comes in. Communities need to know what's available to them and how to get it. Got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation, but you can still call us at 800-433-8850. What changes would you like to see in access and pricing of Internet service? 800-433-8850. Shoot us a tweet at Kojo Show using the hashtag TechTuesday or email to kojo at wamu.org. I'm Kojo Nandi. Coming up at one, damage control after high-profile disasters like plane crashes and metro accidents. Public officials walk a fine line between straight talk and spin. Today at one on the Kojo Nam, the show on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. Thank you, Kojo. 12.44 now. Partly cloudy skies, 41 degrees. I'm Pat Brogan. Tonight at 9 on WAMU 88.5, it's NPR coverage of President Barack Obama's State of the Union address and the Republican response. It's hosted by none other than Robert Siegel. That's NPR's coverage of the State of the Union address tonight at 9 on WAMU 88.5. Mostly cloudy today. Isolated rain showers high 50. Snow and rain possible tomorrow with an accumulation around an inch possible and a high of 39 expected on Wednesday. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from Capital Technology University, formerly Capital College, offering master's and doctoral degrees through practical education in engineering, information sciences, and business. More info at captechu.edu. And from Booz Allen Hamilton, marking 100 years of service, character, and vision. More about their legacy of innovation in consulting, analytics, technology, and engineering at boozallen.com. And from Comcast Business, with internet that's built from the ground up to be reliable, Comcast Business is built for business. More information about business-grade internet, voice, and TV is at comcastbusiness.com. It's Tech Tuesday. We're talking broadband competition and improving Internet access speed and price with Hugh Grundon, president and CEO of Eastern Utilities. Danielle Kale is a policy analyst with New America's Open Technology Institute. Lee Rainey is director of Internet Science and Technology Research at the Pew Research Center. And Kelly Ellsworth is executive director of ByteBack, which provides computer training in Washington, D.C., Alan in Eastern Maryland has had a question that he's been waiting to have answered for a long time, so I'd better go to Alan. Thank you for joining us. You're on the air. Go ahead, please. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the great show. Um, we, we have uh, in Easton probably uh, one of the best anywhere that I've that I've seen. Um, it's very very smooth, no problems. We have a help desk. It's great. Um, other people should come and take a look. Um, I I want to know about um, something called WiMAX. 
M-A-X. Several towns um, have used it, and it's a a super Wi-Fi that they put up, and and pretty much you can walk around the little town and uh, get Wi-Fi. Well, I guess since you're so um, praising of Easton, I'll have you respond to that question. You? Well, Alan, thank you for the kind words. Uh, the WiMAX technology, as you've alluded to, is a wireless technology, and it's something that's been around for quite some time, and we've watched it carefully, thinking that might be a technology to extend our reach into the county. As I was speaking about earlier, there's a lot of houses that are, are remote to even some of the major roadways. And uh, what we have found is the WiMAX technology uh, never developed to the point where we thought it had application or a good application here in Easton. Uh, Part of the problem is we have a very flat terrain and we have trees that may extend up to 80 feet and trees are the the bane of, of most radio signals existence. So um, that's not something that that we have uh, planned to deploy. We'll keep an eye on the technology as as it develops. But to go back to something that uh, Lee was talking about a moment ago, there's this virtuous cycle as different technologies become available and broadband's more fully uh, adopted, and and really the speeds are available. Uh, The example in Easton, and let me go back to... um, uh, Robert from Westminster, it's very exciting that a local community is considering, and in fact, they sound well underway of developing a community system because the local community can be just very, very responsive to its individual needs. We had an example in Easton when we deployed our fiber system. The local hospital contacted us, and they have a downtown campus and they have a remote imaging center. And they had a need to get the images that are taken at the center back to the hospital. And there was not uh, a lot of technology available at that time in the early 2000s. But they also wanted to have their own fiber network, a physically separate network for the uh, purposes of patient confidentiality. And just to give you an example, we were able to design just for them a carrier class system. And uh, to put it in perspective, a CT of the brain, the technology they were using before to transmit, took five minutes. Uh, once we put our system up, it was down to 18 seconds. Uh, we, we sort of enjoyed the radiologists at the hospital dubbing the, our system that we put in place as the ring of fire. But clearly, that inured <laughs> to the benefit of our whole community. <laughs> the ring of fire. Um, what do we know about locations where there's competition between a municipal broadband provider and a big company? Can they both make it, Danielle? Uh, I think that they can, and we're seeing that in uh, cities that I mentioned earlier, cities like Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Lafayette, uh, where the the existing ISPs haven't packed up their bags and gone home. They have networks there. They want to sell. They want to compete. So um, what we're actually seeing a lot of the time is that the municipal network can meet the needs of, you know, a lot of uh, community anchor institutions and a lot of residents and the uh, the existing companies. So in a lot of these cities, it's Comcast and Cox and Charter are also going to try to offer offer better service. And we see the same thing in a city like uh, Austin, Texas, which I mentioned earlier. AT&T doesn't want to give up on Austin as a market. They want to compete with Google Fiber. So I think it's very possible and and it's a good thing uh, that we'll have two networks fighting head to head and trying to offer the best service for their customers because the customers win in that case. They win on price. They You'll see infrastructure upgrades. You'll see better quality of service. And when we talk about the um, broadband providers, which are actually the lowest ranked in customer satisfaction, they, they rank below the airlines and the healthcare industry right now. I think a little competition wouldn't be such a bad thing. On to Will in National Harbor, Maryland. Will, your turn. Hey, we're seeing uh, great cost savings uh, that are wonderful uh, aspects of having the Internet uh, as it relates to government, from everything from the federal government or the IRS side of things to my members of Congress down to my local elected officials. Everybody gets to transmit information now uh, through the Internet, but there's a, a lack of ability for everybody to receive it. And I don't see that any of those mailings and printings, cost savings gets reprogrammed into digital access for the entire community. So we're seeing a, a growing divide between those that have it have more information than they've ever been able to get to before and those that don't have less than they've had in the past. And, well, that's one of the reasons you exist, Kelly. Yes, absolutely. And uh, 
you know, ages ago when the when cable came into being in the beginning, there was an effort to make public access stations, and there were public access cable stations where people could um, make their own programming. So um, I would love to see something like that, where these cost savings are passed on to help catch everyone else up, because um, Lee can tell you that um, part of the reason why people, those who are not on the internet a large reason why they're not is price, but another large reason is um, is not knowing the value of the internet and being afraid of it. Um, and that's where training providers like Biteback come in. Um, a lot of folks, if you weren't exposed to the internet through your job, um, you don't know what the value is. And a lot of uh, folks, especially seniors, are very worried about um, identity theft. They see ads all the time on TV about identity theft, and they need to have instruction to, sh- to know how to use the Internet safely. You'll be happy to know that public access cable still exists in the District of Columbia. I know this because I've been the chairman of the Public Access Corporation for, like, forever. Lee, some people can afford <laughs> a smartphone but can't also afford wired Internet service at home. What's the thinking on whether that's a viable substitute for broadband at home? It's better than nothing, um, but about a third of, of Americans now are wireless preferring. They, they might even have uh, access to wired computers, but the device is always with them when they have their smartphone and their tablet, and they use it a lot. There are deficits that come with that. You can't download things as quickly. It's much harder to file a job application or do a job search on it. It's a device that's harder to interact with government because you need to just have lots more material going back and forth as you're in the midst of those communications. So it's not perfect. But it's for a lot of people, it's the best that they can afford and the best that they have to offer. Here's Mary in Washington, D.C. Mary, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hello, Kojo. Thank you so much for taking my call. I am. Um, I am, would like to know if there is any um, uh, the, any type of regulation, uh, federal at the federal level, that provides for universal service of the um, you know, internet broadband access. And if uh, there is not, um, I think that I would, you know, recommend that perhaps um, there should be, or certainly under the, um, the Universal Service Obligation Superfund that is, is uh, provided for in telecommunications industries, um, could be, uh, you know, uh, include, should include the um, provision of, of broadband, or perhaps even through the Universal Service Obligation from the uh, U.S. Postal Service. Daniel, okay. It seems like there should be some, some uh, you know, requirements, some some regulation that actually um, you know legislates a and provides funding from like the uh, Telecommunications Act, where all of the providers have to pitch in in the pot and and since the Daniel is, uh, communications, yep. it should be. Uh, should be part of that. So, um, so you're right. The the Universal Service Fund uh, that the the FCC uh, administers right now, which comes out of uh, the Telecommunications Act, is originally focused primarily on universal service for telecommunications. Um, but the fund is made up of a couple different programs, uh, which are sort of in varying states of what we call modernization, which is the jargon term for. Um, phasing out support for older services and and actually focusing much more on things like high-speed internet, which are the 21st century equivalent of a lot of the things that Universal Service helped us achieve connectivity in in the 20th century. And so uh, the E-Rate program, which helps fund school and library connectivity, is now, um, after last year, the FCC made it focus entirely on broadband. I mentioned the Connect America Fund. That's also part of the Universal Service uh, Fund, and that is also focused on getting high-cost areas access to uh, broadband Internet service. Uh, And then there's a third program called the Lifeline Program, uh, which right now funds primarily uh, telecommunications services for low-income families. Uh, The FCC is doing some pilots on broadband adoption with the Lifeline Program. So um, whether or not that is something that also is sort of shifted to support broadband access in the future, I think that's likely something that's going to be discussed um, uh, in the next couple of years at the FCC. So there is... Uh, I think a lot of people have a similar uh, share a similar concern to yours that this is an incredibly important thing and that uh, we should be doing more about it and 
the wheels are in motion uh, for uh, much more support for universal broadband service going forward. Lee, for some people, the barrier to using the Internet is a lack of literacy or technical skills or a fear of things like identity theft or email scams. Who tends to fall into those categories? A variety of people do. Uh, one of the groups that it's especially important to talk to in the way that Kelly and her group talk to them are older Americans. They're afraid of identity theft. They're afraid that their machine will break because com- Uh, Computers are not really customer-friendly devices in many cases. They're afraid about predators, stalkers, and all kinds of things online, and they are not nearly as aware of some of the benefits that you can get from being online. Access to government information, good health care information, high-quality news, the list goes on. So access is only a small part of the story for them. It's much more a question of tech support, hand-holding, convincing them that there's a value proposition for going online and things like that. That's particularly true for older Americans who tend to be pretty comfortable with the technologies that they have grown up with. Kelly Biteback offers basic computer literacy classes and IT certification. Who are your clients and what do they need to get onto the Internet? Um, Our clients are almost entirely low income. They're unemployed and very underemployed. Um, they're primarily from wards five, seven, and eight, primarily African American and Latin American. Um, and I think, uh, one of the things that's, that's very important is, um, having group classes, um, for anyone out there who's ever tried to teach your mother or your father how to use the internet, it's, that's hard or how to use a computer. Um, I, my own father, I cannot teach him how to use computers. It's impossible, but I can teach a class of 15 seniors how to use a computer because it works better as a group. People are, are coming from the same uh, viewpoint. They're having fun together. They're meeting each other. They're making friends and that works beautifully. Well, why not just put your father in the class? I'm trying. (laughs) (laughs) That might work out. You got a tweet from Nicole who said, that's how it is in Brentwood. Some apartments have access to only one Internet service provider, which happens to be the case in the apartment building that Danielle Kale lives in. But we're just about out of time. Danielle Kale is a policy analyst with New America's Open Technology Institute. Danielle, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Lee Rainey is Director of Internet Science and Technology Research at the Pew Research Center. Lee, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Wonderful to be here. Hugh Grundon is President and CEO of Eastern Utilities. Hugh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. And Kelly Ellsworth is Executive Director of Biteback, which, as you heard, provides computer training in Washington, D.C. Kelly, a pleasure to thank have you. Thank you, Kojo, for having such an important show. And thank you all for listening. I'm Kojo Namdi. Coming up tomorrow on the Kojo Namdi show, pushing back against the Uber revolution. Taxis in the district plan to adopt apps and change their business model to compete. Then at one, the debate over free-range parenting. A local family lets the kids walk home alone and gets a visit from Child Protective Services. The Kojo Namdi show, noon till 2 tomorrow on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. Good afternoon. This is WAMU 88.5, now. Partly cloudy skies. Cloudy here, though, in northwest Washington, 41 degrees as well. Mostly cloudy today. Isolated rain showers possible, low of or high of 50. Thanks for listening to the Kojo Namdi Show. And if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at WAMU.org. Just click the Donate button, and thanks.